last Sunday, as we were talking about rest and, and the way that time impacts us and hurry impacts us in life, we talked about a couple of key dates in history. So 1370, the first public clock that was put up. Uh, 1879, the invention of the light bulb. 2007, the invention of the smartphone. We missed, though, a key date in history, a key year that you need to remember. 1901. 1901 is the first record in a recipe book, in a cookbook, for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. All right? So, so 1901, first recorded instance in a cookbook of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You may not know this, uh, but part of the way I won Amanda over was with my grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Uh, in college, we survived on taquitos, Little Caesars pizza, and grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like, that is how, how we made it. If you've not had a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I expect you to go home, make that, and send me pictures this afternoon. Like, I want to see a lot, of, a lot of pictures this afternoon. If it sounds complicated, remember that I made this in college, all right? It's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich literally made like a grilled cheese. Uh, but it's incredible when the peanut butter and the jelly begin to heat up and mix together and ooze over the side of the toasted bread. Just phenomenal. Uh, I don't know if you eat a lot of sandwiches in your life, but sandwiches are a go-to. You think about our time we spent in New Orleans and the value of a po' boy sandwich. Al and I were just talking about this morning, him headed to New Orleans, uh, he and Patty in a, in a few weeks, and, and getting the right po' boy sandwich, uh, going to Parkway Bakery and getting the surf and turf with roast beef and shrimp on there, and the value of that, or, or a muffaletta. Anybody ever had a muffaletta before? And uh, yeah, so a few people had muffalettas before, these sandwiches. And you're saying, oh, and this is really enjoyable and I'm getting hungry, but what in the world does this have to do with the Bible? I'm glad you asked. I hope you're asking that. If you're not asking that, we're in trouble. Uh, what does this have to do with the Bible? In the Gospel of Mark, the concept of a sandwich is actually a famous thing that scholars who study the Gospel of Mark talk about. Now, you find this reality all over the Bible in different places, but Mark and sandwiches are a big part of studying Scripture. Mark is famous for his use of this concept where he'll introduce a point. That's the first piece of bread. Then he'll tell a story that almost seems disconnected to the first point. He'll go off on another story, and then after that story, he'll make a connection back to point one. And he does that because bread meet bread the bread on the outside helps you to understand something about the story on the inside. And as you understand the story on the inside, it helps you make sense of these two pieces that seem disconnected. So, so let me show you an example of this in Mark chapter 3, because this is what we're studying, this is what we're thinking about. Mark chapter 3, Mark begins the chapter with what we, look like, we, what we looked at last Sunday, of this man who has the withered hand, the hand that's hard and not able to do work, and Jesus brings healing, but as Jesus heals this man's hand and he finds rest and he's able to do the work that God has set him free to do, at the same time, the Pharisees' hearts are hardened against Jesus. So then what happens in the remainder of this chapter is Mark throws two sandwiches at us that helps us understand what does it look like to be healed and do the work of Jesus, and what does it look like for your heart to be hardened and for you to turn away from Jesus. So what we're going to do at Emmaus is last week 
we looked at this concept of how Jesus brings rest and peace and healing. This week, we're going to pick up the negative sandwich, all right? This is the nasty sandwich that you don't want. Like we, we, we want to throw this one away, but we're going to look at it because we need to think about what does it look like to live lives opposed to Jesus. Next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to pick up that part about the crowd and the disciples because he puts this crowd sandwich around disciples to ask us the question, are you going to be part of the crowd or are you going to be a disciple? Then he makes this family sandwich and in the middle of it puts in there this idea of demonic work and blasphemy because he's trying to determine what does it mean to truly be part of his family? What does it look like to be a part of the family of God? Here's where we're going this morning. Most of this morning describes what it looks like to live opposed to the way of Jesus. So this is the don't go this direction, so then that next week we can say go this direction. This morning, you're trying to think in your heart and in your mind, what does it look like when someone lives against the way of Jesus? What does it look like when a person's heart is hardened against the way of the Lord? And then we're going to come around at the end and say, let's not do that. What does it look like to go a different direction? All right, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Let's work our way through these verses. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, this man is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. The so-called bad guys so far in Mark's gospel, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, uh, have, have been active in this area of Galilee up north where Jesus is doing his ministry, but now... They brought in the real leaders. The real religious leaders have come down from Jerusalem to confront this man named Jesus. Something interesting, it's not 100% important, but it's super interesting in the New Testament, is when you go from Jerusalem, even if you travel north, you always go down. So in our world, when we think about, hey, there's a cold front coming down from the north that's going to come in to Oklahoma, it's always north to south, you're going down. In the Bible, you can travel north, but it says you're going down. They went down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was this key central place built on this mountain. And whichever direction you went, oftentimes in the Bible, you're going down. So here there's this group of religious leaders who are coming to confront Jesus because they don't like what they hear about his exorcisms and, and about his teaching. And they're going to go down and they're going to confront him. And when they get there, they say, this man is possessed by Beelzebul. And you might be asking, well, who is Beelzebul? It's picking up on this Old Testament idea, but the word Beelzebul means ruler over a realm of demons. Uh, so a ruler over a house, a ruler over a kingdom is the idea. It's connected to a word in the Old Testament that means Lord of the Flies, almost, uh, that, that kind of a concept. So it's a very negative uh, concept, but it's the idea that here, this one Jesus who's come to teach, he's actually ruler over the demons. Well, this is a big deal because then right after that it says, by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. We don't talk about, in contemporary Baptist church life, we don't talk about demon exorcism very, very much. Like, that's not a popular topic, but in the New Testament, the fact that Jesus was casting out demons is a big deal. 
because it shows a picture of what his ministry is all about, that he has come to cast out evil, cast out sin, to overcome Satan. And so every time a demon is cast out in the ministry of Jesus, it's a picture, a snapshot of what his whole ministry is supposed to be about. So this isn't just a random spiritual encounter that's turned into a freaky movie. This is a picture of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, that he has come to overcome the power of Satan, to overthrow the power of the demons. But now these religious leaders say the only reason he can do that is because he's using Satan's power. He's playing with dark magic. You know, there's, there's fun magic and then there's dark magic. And they're, they're charging Jesus with sorcery here. That he's playing with dark magic is the reason he's able to do this. Verse 24. Or verse 23, I'm sorry. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over. Said, hey, if you've traveled all this way to you know, confront me about this, let's talk about it. He called them to him and spoke to them in parables, which is an indicator that Jesus already knows they're outsiders to his ministry. He speaks to them in this very unique way in these parables. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, if the work of demons is from Satan because he wants to terrorize and destroy people with the work of demons, why would Satan then come along and undo his own work? Why would Satan come along and cast out demons that he himself sent to do this work? Uh, this, is, this is logic class 101. Like, it doesn't make any sense that he would be charged as being Satan himself if he's casting out these demons. And then he tells a couple of really interesting parables in 24 and 25. If a kingdom is divided against itself, Jesus says, that kingdom cannot stand. And remember, Beelzebul, this idea of a ruler of a kingdom of demons, Jesus is playing on, on this language. He's He's taking the bad name they gave him and he's turning it around on them at this situation. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. <laughs> and if you've been on a sports team or been part of a business or been part of an organization that had internal division, you know that thing's not gonna last very long. Things are gonna fall apart from the inside out. And Jesus is saying, hey, if, if you're calling me Satan and I'm doing the work to drive out demons, that type of kingdom's not gonna be able to stand. And, and you see that language there in verse 25? If a house is divided against itself, that phrasing was used by Abraham Lincoln in his 1858 address when he was running for the senator's seat in Illinois. And so this house divided language, Lincoln picks up in that, in that address when he's, uh, been nominated for Illinois senator position, which obviously he ends up not getting. But when he runs for president, the Lincoln-Douglas debates that are brought together and published when he begins that presidential campaign, this house-divided speech becomes the opening to those Lincoln-Douglas debates that become part of this process of what does it look like to live within a nation that's divided? What does it look like to live within a house that's divided? And, and the importance of this unity. And so this is the concept that Jesus is bringing to them. Hey, I'm not trying to tear this house apart from the inside. If a house is falling apart, something else is causing it to happen. Verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself, and is divided, he can't stand, 
but he is coming to an end. That's a cool little phrase that you can underline in your Bible because is the kingdom of Satan coming to an end? <laughs> Absolutely. Why is the kingdom of Satan coming to an end? Because Jesus has come. And so Jesus is using this parable and he's giving them a preview of what he's come to do. He's come to overthrow the kingdom of Satan, to overthrow the power of sin and darkness and, and death. Verse 27, Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What's Jesus saying in, in this verse? He's calling the shots is what he's doing here. He's saying the kingdom of Satan is not crumbling from within. The kingdom of Satan is crumbling because one stronger than him has come. And who's he referring to there? Himself. He's saying one stronger than the power over demons, one stronger than the father of lies, one who wants to destroy God's creation, one stronger than him has come and he's going to be tied up. And you think about this binding of Satan language. Find that in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 24. You find it in Isaiah chapter 49. There's a really famous passage in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 20, where it talks about Satan being bound. It's picking up this idea that when Jesus came, he came to overthrow the power of Satan. He came to overthrow the power of evil and darkness and death. And as you think about that for a second, if you're feeling just a little bit argumentative with me this morning, you might say, okay, that's okay. I, I, I get that he came for that. Why still the evil in the world? If Jesus came and he died and he rose again, why do we still face evil? Why does it seem like Satan is still at work in the world? Why is there so much death and pain? And this is where we come back to that already, not yet, New Testament theology, where we can say that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of Satan absolutely has been overcome. And yet, we live in a world where the effects of Satan's involvement in the world, the effects of evil and pain and death and brokenness are still all around us, knowing, though, that through Jesus we ultimately have victory. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, Satan doesn't have any ultimate power in this world. And so you see that process that with the coming of Jesus, Satan has been bound, has been tied up, and yet the fullness of that still rests in the future. Uh, already, not yet. If you're part of Emmaus, hopefully you're getting that tattooed on yourself sometime soon. Not that I'm promoting tattoos, but hopefully already, not yet. It's one of those things that you're thinking about all the time. If you're not a part of Emmaus, stick around, and we'll talk about already, not yet. Already, we have the victory of Jesus in the world. We believe that that's true because of Easter. Not yet do we live in a world where all of the effects of sin and death and brokenness have been overcome. That's New Testament theology worked out. So Jesus says, hey, guess what? I'm not Satan, but I have come to overthrow Satan. I have come to cast him out, and it is it possible because I'm stronger than him. Verse 28, truly I say to you, and, and what he's saying, because of what I've come to do, so truly I say to you, because of who I am and what I've come to do, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Sin has been overcome. Whatever blasphemies they utter, they're going to be forgiven. Verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit 
never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now this verse, these, these two verses, verses 29 and 30, they're very similar to a concept that you find in 1 John 5 about a sin leading to death. And these verses have caused a lot of emotional strain for people who have very weak consciences or, or, or prone to guilt. Um, I had a lady come to me, not here at Emmaus, but at a previous church that I pastored, and she was terrified that she had committed this sin, that she had committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and, and she was concerned whether she would be able to ever spend eternity with God, could she ever be forgiven? And what came out of that conversation is that there was a time in her life when she had been involved in some very dark things. And there was a time in her life where she had directly rejected the way of Jesus, and yet she had been saved. She had been brought back to the Lord and, and, and found forgiveness and healing, and yet these verses haunted her because of something that had happened, something that she had said in her past. These verses, hear me out on this, these verses are a warning to the hard-hearted. <laughs> They are not meant to be a stumbling block to those who have a weak conscience or feel guilty about something that's happened in the past because the, the idea here is that somebody in an ongoing way has continued to reject the way of Jesus. So what makes that unforgivable? If you continue to reject the way of Jesus, you rejected the very way of forgiveness. And in the Old Testament, best illustration, best way I know to explain this to you comes from the Old Testament uh, with, with Pharaoh. When you read the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament, there are times in that story where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. There are other places in that story where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you say, well, well which is it? Well, it's both because as Pharaoh hardens his heart against God, God allows that hardening to happen and it reinforces itself. These verses are talking about someone who attributes the work of Jesus to a dark power, to the power of Satan, whose hearts grow hard and who continues to reject the way of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're afraid that you have committed that sin, by the very nature of you being here this morning, I am certain you have not committed that sin. That if you are worried about committing that sin, it's a sign that your heart is still soft toward the things of God. A person who has committed this sin flat out does not care, <laughs> does not care about anything to do with the things of the Lord and continues to attribute the work of Jesus to the work of Satan. I realize this morning in a crowd of 450 or 500, what do we have here this morning? In a crowd like this, most likely no one has to be directly, immediately concerned about committing that sin. But here's what I do want you to consider. Here's what I do want you to think about. What does it look like for someone to begin to move that direction? What does it look like for someone to live their life opposed to the way of Jesus, against the way? Our entire sermon series of 14 or 15 months through the Gospel of Mark is called On the Way, because we're talking about going on the way of Jesus. This morning, though, I want you to think about what does it look like to live against the way of Jesus? To live against the way of Jesus is to live with a hard heart, that your heart grows hard to the things of God. It's one thing to be opposed to God. 
it's another thing to reach a place in your life that you just don't care. That your heart grows hard to the things of the Lord. That you become bitter. That you become cynical. This idea that the work of Satan is, is about causing division among the people of God. Satan is the father of lies, and so he's constantly promoting a world of lies. So here's what I'm asking you to consider in your life. Are there times or are there signs that I find my heart growing hard toward the things of God? I just don't care. I don't care if I read my Bible. I don't care if I show up at the church. I don't care if I pray. I don't care if anybody gets saved. And, and not only I don't care, but I start to get bitter. Bitterness in your heart is such a red flag about things going on in your life that when you find yourself getting bitter and cynical, making fun of the things of God, making fun of the things of church, hear those sirens going off. God, this is not your way. This is not the way of Jesus. What's going on in my heart causing me to go in, in this direction? Famously in church history, the work of Satan was summarized as doing the work of Satan, the work of the flesh, and the work of the devil. So you avoid Satan, flesh, and the devil. Uh, or Satan, flesh, and the world. Best book I know about this is a recent book that was written in the last couple of years called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. Um, if you don't get that written down and you want to ask about it later, just let me know. But John Mark Comer has written a book recently called Live No Lies in which he explores how does Satan do his work in the world? What does it look like? It happens through lies that we begin to take into our lives, that we begin to believe things that aren't true about God's word. And then in our flesh, we start to live according to those lies, however we want. So we start telling ourselves, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter who I have sex with. It doesn't matter how I spend my money. It doesn't matter how I achieve political power. It doesn't. And we start to do things in our lives that, that aren't honoring to God. And <laughs> this is the tipping point. We live in a world that encourages those things. So you have the devil that gives lies, you have our flesh that begins to like those lies, and you have a world that says, go for it. Well, you can see where that becomes a recipe for living against the way of Jesus. And so we're constantly trying to think about, how do I push back against that? I don't want to live a life where I'm opposed to the work of Jesus in somebody else's life. In my heart, God, is my heart getting hard? Why am I making fun of things that have to do with Jesus? Why, why am I becoming bitter toward other people? God, what's happening there? Draw me out of that. Draw me in a different direction. And because we're not going to end with the bad news this morning, we are going to get toward the good news. Here it is. How do you live on the way of Jesus? What does it look like not to go down this direction I'm talking about, but to go the way that Jesus wants us to go? First, you have to begin by trusting in his identity and power to know who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because until we get that right, until we get our eyes focused on Jesus, we're not going to fully understand what it means to trust him and to follow him. And as we trust him and follow him, the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance and humility. That it's not ha something that happens one time, it's an ongoing reality. Martin Luther, when on October 31st, 1517, was nailing the 95 statements up on, on the door. Martin Luther, the first one, says 
that when Jesus commanded his people to repent, he commanded them to repent as a way of life. That the call to repentance, the call to humility, why is this so important? Here's why. Hear me out on this. We're getting close to the end. Why does this matter? Because repentance will keep your heart soft. Repentance and humility will keep your heart soft toward God and toward others. To realize, I don't have it all together. I need God's grace. I need God's mercy. And not only God's grace and mercy, I need my spouse's grace and mercy. And I need my friend's grace and mercy. And I need my church's grace and mercy. And I keep my heart soft by not hiding those things and becoming bitter toward other people, but by living a life of repentance and humility. God, I'm sorry. And then going to the people we've sinned against and saying, I I know what I did was not honoring to the Lord. And it creates this openness and trust and and keeps our hearts soft. And then we begin to do the work that God has called us to do. We do the work of his kingdom. More about that next week as we get to Grad Sunday and think about being disciples of Jesus. Here's what I want to ask you as we wrap up. In your life right now, are you working against the way of Jesus Or are you living on the way of Jesus? Like, what direction is my heart going? Is my heart, do I sense myself getting hard and bitter and cynical? Or do I feel my heart drawn toward the Lord and drawn to other people, drawn to humility, drawn to repentance, trusting in Jesus, knowing more of Jesus? In Scripture, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, there is a wide gate and a broad path that leads down a way that leads to destruction. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that looks right to people and its end is destruction. But there's also a narrow gate and a smaller, narrower path. Where does that path lead? It leads to life. Which path is your life going down? Is your path leading to destruction or is your path leading to life? What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What path is your life going down? This morning, if your life is not going down the path of Jesus, I know that sounds so simple, but it's how simple the gospel is. Can I call you to follow Jesus? To stop going down the path you're going down? The path that you know leads to destruction? And I'm calling you this morning to trust in Jesus, to come and talk to someone, to pray with someone after the service and say, I want to make sure my life is going down the right path. And if you're here and you're a Christian, what God may be doing in your heart this morning is he may be getting your attention and say, hey, watch out that you're not getting bitter. Watch out that you're not getting cynical. Watch out that your heart's not getting hard toward me. Make sure that you're staying focused on me, that you're active in what I've called you to do. And so this morning, your response might be, I just need to come to the front and pray individually, pray with someone, and ask God's forgiveness. Come with humility, saying, I want my heart to be soft before the Lord. Jesus said what? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let's pray together. Father, we know that we look around, we look around the world and we see people who speak so badly against the way of Jesus and 
whose lives are opposed to the way of Jesus. But we have to be careful that we don't worry about people or be judgmental toward people who aren't focused on you. We have to think about our own hearts. God, what's going on in my life? Is, is my heart hard and cynical and bitter, or is my heart open to what you want to do, how you're working in the world? God, we want to be building our lives on Jesus. We want to be building his kingdom. And God, I pray if there's anyone here, if there's a teenager here, and they're thinking about the direction of their life, where is their life heading? And they know their life is not going down the way of Jesus. They know their life is not going in the right way. God, would they be able to trust in you this morning? Trust in the way of Jesus. Trust that he is good. And God, I pray if anybody walked in here, maybe they wouldn't have said it out loud, but they felt pretty cynical about church when they walked in. They felt pretty bitter toward other people or toward you. God, would you just soften their heart this morning? and remind them that their hope is found in Jesus. We pray this together in Jesus' name, amen.